Thank you, Stephen, for bringing us that update. And it is really a joy to be able to be used by God to touch lives around the world with the gospel. And we talk a lot about growing deeper, walking closer, and reaching farther. And this is a way that we're reaching farther. So be sure to join us for lunch if you can make it, because getting those cards when uh, they're on the field, that's a, that's a big deal. That's a, a massive area of encouragement. Um, so it, here we are continuing through 1 Corinthians, and uh, just to kind of bring us back to where, how this started. Paul, in the year 50, is traveling through Corinth, and he plants a church. And uh, the city of Corinth, very much like San Francisco, you might think. It, it sort of had everything going for it in terms of economy. It had a lot of different ideas in terms of what was true, uh, religious, philosophical, kind of cutting-edge, you know, front-side progressive thinking. That was happening in Corinth at the time. And, and, uh, and, and one thing we're going to see throughout the book of 1 Corinthians is this. The church there in Corinth would continually cling to false criteria for true spirituality. So there would be this notion, this thing, oh man, if we can really hold on to um, maybe this, if, you know, if the married people were saying, you know, if I could be single, then I could be really spiritual. Um, you know, maybe you had a rough morning with your spouse today if you're married and you're going, that's amen, you know, preach it, right? But that, that, I could be really spiritual if I was not married. Uh, others were single, and they were saying, no, if I could be married, then I could be really spiritual. And then uh, for others, it was the different gifts that God had given the church. And, well, if you have this particular gift, the gift of, of let's say, speaking in tongues, then you're really spiritual. Or if you have the gift of knowledge, then you're really spiritual. Or the gift of prophecy, then you're really spiritual. And the other gifts, oh, they're okay. Uh, and there were other, several different areas where the, the, they would fall into this. And, and what happens is Paul now is, is writing them and saying, hey, wake up. These good gifts were given to you by God, but if you place your hope on the gift, you miss out on truly resting in and knowing the giver. Don't do that. And it's so easy for us to do. We get caught up in a good thing, and then the good thing becomes the main thing, and then we end up missing out on the real thing. I was thinking about an idea back from when I was in college. So you might know this, but I, so I, I was a jazz studies major. <laughs> yeah. Can you see how I got here? It's totally clear, isn't it? Obviously. Hello. Uh, no, anyway, so I was. I was a jazz studies major. And, uh, and so when you play jazz guitar, you know, there's a lot of things you want to learn as a part of your repertoire, right? You want to have these things just under your fingers. You know, certain, certain songs, certain lines. And I remember there was one time I needed a sub for something. I even forgot what I was playing. I was playing somewhere, and I needed a sub. I couldn't make it. And so I, I always tried to get a sub that was better than me. I never wanted to have someone come in that was going to kind of fall through and let, the, let the, the group down they were playing with, right? So I, I found this, this guy, you know, was last, asking around who could cover for me. And this guy came in, and so he, he, played, he played the gig for me. I was really grateful for that. Um, and then I, later, I was back with that, that group and, and we were just talking, and they were like, yeah, man, that guy, he could play Donna Lee. Now, if you are not a jazz person, don't know what Donna Lee is. So Charlie Parker wrote Donna Lee. It is one of the most brilliant, melodic lines in all of that era of jazz, okay? And it is incredibly fast. It is fast, it's intricate, and yet if you take each little phrase and just break it down, it's just this gorgeous piece of music. I'm like, he played Donna Lee. I got to play Donna Lee. <laughs> so I go off and I'm, I'm learning Donna Lee, you know. You know, I'm trying to get this thing down, trying to get it down, trying to get it down, right? And it's, it's long. 
And eventually, you know, I've got it down. And so the next rehearsal, you know, I kind of show up and we're warming up. I'm going, you know. <laughs> like, I got, I got it too, man. I got it, okay. And then I remember I was talking to another jazz guitar guy, way more mature, you know, had been doing it a long time. And he looks at me and we're, and somehow in the course of the conversation, he just kind of goes, hey, you know, I mean, everyone wants to, I'm going to play Donna Lee, you know, everyone wants to do that. But then you ask him, can you play it slow? And they can't. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I, I'm talking to him, I'm like, yeah, huh, yeah, sure. And I walk away, I'm like, man, I don't know. So I, I, I sit down to play it. And I'm like, da 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 I couldn't do it. I just was so caught up in the fact that I could play it and I could play it fast that I missed out on what it was really about. It's a beautiful, melodic line. It happens to be played really fast. So it was a good thing, but I got caught up in something about it that made me think it was what it was all about. And in doing so, I missed the whole point. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here with the Corinthians. There are some beautiful good things that have been given to the church. And yet, when you fixate on that thing or those things, you miss out on the whole point, which is Christ himself. Knowing him, walking with him. So Paul's about to address that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Go ahead and open there in your Bibles. And in honor of the word of God, would you stand and follow along as I read? Paul's just finished declaring that God is faithful. He's just finished affirming the call of the Corinthian church in Jesus Christ, their Lord. And now in verse 10, he moves to say this. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see clearly what you teach us here in these words. We ask that your spirit would work in our hearts in these moments so that what he wrote to the church at Corinth and to us would transform us would cause us to see things from your vantage point, would protect us corporately from division, but would also protect us individually from distraction. Lord, grace us to walk with you and to declare this gospel that others would know you in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats.
as we examine this passage, we're going to look at it in light of a question. How will we thrive as a gospel church? That's really what Paul is addressing here throughout the entire book. What's it mean to actually thrive as a gospel church? And what we find in this section is that we must live first in light of one union. We need to live in light of one union. Uh, One union, meaning one bringing together, one being uh, entity, being placed into that entity. And that union is found in Christ. And so Paul calls him that in verse 10. Notice he says, now I exhort you. He's just shifted. He's going, hey, I've been encouraging you. I'm grateful for you. I pray for you. You're brothers and sisters in Jesus. You're in Christ. You've been rescued by him. And now I'm going to bring some correction. It's, 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 it's an exhortation to a certain thing. What is it? That you agree, that there be no divisions among you. Now notice he does this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that is a, a, a fascinating phrase because he's just talked about the fact in verse 9 that they have fellowship with his son in Jesus Christ their Lord. So now he's saying in a direct connection there, look, it's the character of Christ. It's the name of Christ. It's the authority of Christ. It's the, the, the way in which Christ is the sovereign Lord of all, and yet he is also the self-sacrificing Lamb of God. It's in him that I'm talking to you now and exhorting you. Uh, I'm calling you to not get caught up in petty arrogance. I'm calling you to see who rescued you. And, and then he, you'll notice he says that you agree and there not be divisions and that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. Somehow there was a divisiveness happening. And, and so he was saying to them, it is urgent, it is critical that you not allow these things to pull you apart. It's, it's so important that you don't allow yourself to... to um, be, be brought to this place of having fellowship somehow disrupted. Your fellowship, your, your, your community togetherness in Jesus somehow get hindered by these different factions. And you wonder, well, what were the factions? Well, Chloe, we don't know who she was. Uh, she could have been a businesswoman who had different people that would work for her and travel different places. Possibly they went to Paul, who's now not in Corinth, right? He's in another place, and they've brought word to him. Something's up in Corinth at the church. What is it? Well, verse 12 tells us. Each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. What's happening here? Well, these brothers and sisters in Corinth are somehow, some way, getting into petty arguments, disagreements over preferences on pastoral personalities. There are different pastors that had come through. Paul had planted the church. Apollos had come later and preached to the church. Cephas or Peter also uh, very likely came through and taught. So the idea would be each of these Corinthian people, they're sitting there, they're looking and they're going, yeah, that, that's, that's my teacher right there. He's the best. He's the one. He rocks. Um, and, and, and another one's going, no, no, it's not, it's, not, it's not Paul, man. Paul's okay. But Apollos, have you heard that guy? He's eloquent. I mean, he comes in, he brings, he's got a great story, you know, a great presentation, kind of brings some philosophy. Some others. I mean, it's kind of cool. And then others are going, no, Cephas. Cephas was there with Jesus. Hello. He's the guy. 
And they're actually allowing these different preferences over pastoral personality to somehow hinder fellowship, oneness. And of course, we we read that and we go, well, that never happens today at all, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, today it's worse, isn't it? In some ways, the internet has helped. Because the reality is, all of us can go wherever we like, click a button, hear a podcast, get, you know, read a blog, whatever it is. We can have literally 24-7 input from a, a, a teacher of our choosing. And in some ways, that's a blessing. I mean, but, and, and that's part of the, the, the irony here. Teachers are given to the church as gifts. It's a beautiful thing. It's not bad. But when those gifts now become the ultimate thing, now they're distorted. And then comes division. And so we hear things like, I am of Piper, I am of MacArthur, I am of Moeller, I am of Keller. And if you're here going, who are those people? Don't worry about it. They're wonderful teachers that God's used to bless the church. And they're very commendable. And you'll notice, by the way, the teachers aren't being corrected. The problem isn't that. Thank God for the teachers that he's blessed us with. And yet, how often do we align ourselves with these specific personalities in such a way that it almost becomes like like a cult of personality? And for those of you who are aware of 80s rock, you know the song I'm talking about. Yeah, I know. See, so I, I got the, some of you are going, huh, 80s rock. I know, you weren't around for that. It's okay. There was some okay music happening. This is a really good band, Living Color, whatever. But the point is, the cult of personality is a real thing. It happens. And, and so, as, as these brothers and sisters would align and link up, they were actually... Uh, taking in the cultural values around them rather than standing against those cultural values. Because in Corinth, having a certain speaker speak with a certain amount of rhetoric and skill uh, brought attention, brought followers. Uh, They weren't just clicking on a mouse and going, yeah, I'm following you. No, they literally like followed them. (laughs) You know, they, they, they actually had people following them and they're thinking, and, and there was, they, they built a platform in the first century around these different rhetorical, philosophical arguments that they would make in the public square. And so now, this, this attitude found in the prevailing culture around the church was seeping into the church. And so, that happens. And, and the reality is, is in today, as we've already discussed, we can attach ourselves in the same way. Not, not the teacher's fault at all. It's us. We're the ones doing that. And it's dangerous. Um, why is it dangerous? Well, for all kinds of reasons. It's dangerous because we can actually end up tying our hope inadvertently to this person. Many of us are familiar with what happened with Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. And if you're not, again, that's okay. But if you are, uh, you know what happened there. There was a, a lot of ways in which Everything was built on the personality of the guy to the point where he would stand up and, 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 and some grouping of people would say, I am the brand. It's me. 
and it fell apart. And, and sadly, there were many people whose faith was shipwrecked because it was based on him, on a personality, instead of on Christ himself. Um, there's many other examples. There's more examples than we can even go into or have time for. I think it's also dangerous because when we find ourselves attaching ourselves to or identifying with a human teacher to this extent, we end up splitting over secondary issues. We end up dividing over things that aren't tier one issues. They're tier two. Many years ago, and some of you might remember this, but there was something called Growing Kids God's Way. It was sort of a parenting method. And, and, and a lot of parents found it really helpful. Uh, you know, it was, it was kind of based upon different, different scriptural principles and trying to help kids grow up in a certain way. However, a lot of it was not tier one stuff. It was just tier two preferential stuff. And yet, if parents didn't agree on that, there was sort of like, oh, oh, are you doing it parenting that way? Oh, you're not? Oh, okay, well, we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. Um, there was almost like a, you don't have your kids around their kids, right? Because they have a different parenting philosophy and it might rub off. It was sad. And, and so what happened was eventually, you know, fidelity to God in some people's minds equaled holding on to this method of parenting. And, uh, and then sadly, when other things about leadership are uncovered and things are discerned, then all, all of a sudden everything's called into question. And again, people end up finding themselves in, in the midst of a bunch of wreckage. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, those are, those are other areas in which we need to see that. Now, when he says agree and no divisions amongst you. Is he saying that all of us together here have to see every issue the same way? Do we have to agree on everything? And the answer is no. No, the point is is that there be no divisions among you. In other words, he's clarifying the nature of the the agreement. Um, This is not simply uniformity. Instead, what it is, it's it's, it's a non-competitive, harmonious, uh, togetherness attitude amongst differing gifts, amongst differing people, and there's a variety of gifted teachers that are given to the church, and it's a way of rejoicing in God's gifts, rejoicing in the way he uses those different teachers without saying, this is the one to listen to, forget that one. And oh, I'm superior to you. I'm a little more wise than you are because I am an adherent of that teacher, not those. Now, it doesn't mean we're agreeing on absolutely everything. As a matter of fact, one thing the Bible clearly tells us is that there's diversity in the midst of the unity. And, and, and as a gospel church, we value unity over uniformity. They're not the same thing. And in verse 10, he says that you be made complete. That's the urging. saying, like, I'm exhorting you. Watch out for this danger. Don't fall for it. Instead, be made complete. And, and that, that, pic, that word pictures the idea of mending something or restoring something or creating something. Uh, if, a, if a potter in the first century formed a vase and it was ready and for the customer and, and, and put together and, and solid and, and ready for use, it was made complete. Or, or if a fisherman came back out of the, the Sea of Galilee and the nets were torn, they would mend them. They would make them complete. That's the picture. Or if in architecture, if, if a wall fell down, of a city or of a sanctuary of some kind, and the wall was rebuilt, it was made complete. You get the idea. It's something that's been ripped apart that's being restored. And that's what Paul is calling the church at Corinth to here. And so he's saying, my brothers, in other words, part of the family of God, I'm exhorting you, don't 
fall for that. Um, it's almost like, like different people in Corinth had become sort of connoisseurs. You know what a connoisseur is, right? A connoisseur is someone who samples and tastes things. They evaluate things. They know things about things. Um, they become experts in an area. I mean, connoisseur, like when, when they sip the coffee, they're like, oh, there are overtones of blueberry and, and aardvark horns along with a slight bouquet of cinnamon. You know, and you're like, really? <laughs> I, I think this coffee is yummy. You know, that's all I'm going to say. It's, it's really good. I, I don't know. But that's a connoisseur. And here's the thing. You'll notice the pattern with connoisseurs. It's very easy to then become a critic. Most connoisseurs become critics. Um, here, here's an example for you. I don't know if you liked the movie Ratatouille or not, but that's a pretty funny movie, all right? I, you know, there's not many. I'm going to go, hey, go see that, but that's a good one. But do you remember the food critic in Ratatouille? His name was Anton Ego. What a great name, Anton Ego. And of course, he's like this vicious critic, right? You, you can see him when he first shows up. He's like, he's all skinny and gaunt and angry, and he's a food critic, you're going, man, you know, he doesn't even like the food. You can tell he's just like doing his job. And of course, you know, the, the story of Ratatouille is there's a rat who can cook. Okay, I got it. I know, that's a stretch, whatever. There's a rat. He's a really good cook. And so it's kind of going through this whole process of the, you know, eventually at the end of the story, I don't want to ruin it for you, but Anton's there, Anton Ego. And uh, Ratatouille, ironically enough, the this, this soup is brought to him. And, you know, and there's that moment where Anthony goes like, you know, he's mad, he's angry, and he's like, we'll see if this is any good. And he takes the spoon in, and he's kind of sniffing it the way a connoisseur critic would. And he takes a bite, and in that moment, it's like, bam! He flashes back to being a child in his mother's kitchen when she's serving him soup. And then you just see his eyes, and he utters, mommy, you know? And that's, (laughs) he's changed. You know, he's totally changed. Why? Because he enjoyed the soup. He was brought to a new place. He was astounded. And I think that's the question we need to ask ourselves is, you know, as we gather to hear the word of God preached, do you come as a connoisseur of preachers or do you come as a disciple of the word? Today, we're gathered together. What are you doing? Are you sitting there going, yeah, that's a pretty good Ratatouille illustration, I guess. It's all right. (laughs) Did you like the way he structured the first point? You know, I wonder if there's going to be some alliteration maybe later. Is that where your brain is? It's almost as good as that other guy I heard preach, you know, the other day. It's pretty good. I've heard about five messages on this passage, you know, I'm not sure. Is that where you're at? Because if so, I want you to know something. You're in danger. You are in a very dangerous place because you are not coming to hear what God is saying to you right now not because of the power or persuasiveness of the person preaching no because the Holy Spirit wrote this and the Holy Spirit when this is declared he is at work inside of each of us, to transform us, to change us. We need to come eager to hear from God. 
And if that's not what you're coming here for, you're in a very dangerous place. Young people, you know, it might be, some here might go to a Christian school. Maybe you go to Berean or Contra Costa Christian or Ignatia Valley Christian School or whatever, one of our local Christian schools. So what happens is week in, week out, you have chapel speakers coming through. Week in, week out, you're in Bible class. And you know how deadly it can be to begin to kind of go through that motion of, oh yeah, I'm touching the Bible all the time, handling the things of God all the time. And that's right, I've heard like eight speakers this week alone. And what's this guy got? You're in a dangerous place. I'm going to give you an illustration. Um, I don't give it to you because I'm always or have always been excelling in this area. This is something I pray about. Um, Because let's face it, I spend a lot of time preaching. It's real easy to get into shop mode. I want you to know when someone is preaching here at our church and it's not me, I am sitting here, I am not criticizing, I'm not there to evaluate, I am praying for the brother who's bringing the word and I'm asking that God would change me in light of what they're sharing. Every time. That is my goal. I remember being in seminary and uh, during chapel. I had Greek with Dr. Thomas right after chapel. Dr. Thomas was the hardest prof I've ever had. And I'm telling you right now, we had doctors in there, we had lawyers in there, and they were all like, this is the hardest guy we've ever had. Okay, that was, he was tough. And I remember being so tempted to take out flashcards and start memorizing in the back row while the chapel speaker was preaching. And then I was deeply convicted. The thought was, Chris, if you were in a room, maybe, maybe you're being brought into the throne room of God and God himself is going to say something to you. Are you going to be sitting in a chair going, yeah, God, hold on one second. Uh, Lagos, Legay, Lago, Lagoon, Lagon. One second. Uh, how's that declension work? Really? Are you going to do that? And the answer was, No then why are you thinking you can sit through a chapel message and just sort of flit along studying and memorizing things when someone is bringing my word forward that you would be changed? So from that time on, my flashcards were nowhere near me during chapel. And I think my grade in Greek suffered. But... Am I a connoisseur? Or am I seeking to hear the voice of God? Where are you today? The desire would be for all of us that we would be those who are eager to receive God's word. You know, a connoisseur rates a disciple receives. A connoisseur half-heartedly picks through something to find something new. A disciple eagerly applies everything given because it's from Christ by his spirit. A connoisseur will rank by preference. A disciple values faithfulness to the gospel. So how do we know if we're in a connoisseur mindset? 
think there's a lot of indicators, some to be aware of. First, beware when you're not having Bible-centered gospel conversations in community in a local church. You know, it's very easy. You're, you know, oh, I got my podcast. I check out this person online. I follow this person. I'm good. Um, you know, it might be a prominent preacher. It might be someone with a large following. It might be a, a personality that's been curated just right for your taste. Content's always available to consume, but the reality is, is that's not how the Bible describes growth in the Christian life. It happens in community together as we talk about God and the things of God together, as we struggle together, as we grow together. It's in the mess that God does beautiful work. Uh, I have to say, as a pastor these days, it's, it's, hard. it's hard for us. Why? Because we know all that content's available for all of you all the time. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a blessing. It's a wonderful thing. And yet, uh, there was an article that came out several years ago, and the title of it was Pornography and the Celebrity Pastor. And, and the point of the article was simply this. In the same way that a wife whose husband has gotten a mesh into porn, in the same way she struggles because what's he, what's he attracted to? An airbrushed figment of someone's imagination, essentially. This woman is not real. She's never going to get in a fight with him. She's never going to criticize him. He's never going to smell her stinky breath in the morning. Like, none of that. She's not real. And so this fantasy is something that, you know, sadly he gets caught up in and, and it devastates their marriage. And, and then here she is sensing that, how can I possibly measure up to that, right? Um, in the same way, the celebrity pastor syndrome is also kind of like that. Why? Because they're never going to say to you something you don't like to hear. Actually, if you don't like to hear it, you just press the stop button, skip button. You're never going to see them having a bad day. Matter of fact, you're never going to their, hear their weakest sermons. Why? Because they're all edited. They put them together. It's always spruced up, cleaned up, chopped up. And then what you get is just like on a platter. Like, la, la, there it is. You're not going to have a disagreement with them. They're not actually going to go after you for different areas of confrontation when needed. Uh, and sadly, they're also, they, they don't know you. They won't be next to you in, the, in a memorial service. They're not going to be near you in a hospital bed. They're... There was a guy named Carl Truman who was a, a prof at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. And he became very disturbed by this tendency because as he had people applying to the seminary and coming in, the question would come up, who has had the most impact on your life? Aside from the Lord Jesus and his work through the word, who, humanly speaking, has had the most impact on your life personally as a believer. And more and more, they were listing people that didn't personally know them. And he was like, that's a problem. A big problem. So again, it's not that we aren't grateful for those resources. It's not that we aren't grateful for those gifted teachers. We are. Praise God for their work. But, Protect us, Lord, from becoming connoisseurs rather than disciples. And then for actually allowing our devotion to one of these gifted teachers 
be something that actually hinders fellowship amongst us in the local assembly. Paul goes on to use the language of absurdity as he continues. Uh, If you look at verse 13, has Christ been divided? You know, by the way, he's referring back to that statement, I'm of Christ. Oh, so you're of Christ. That means the rest aren't of Christ? Hmm, interesting. So Christ has been divided. Is, is that possible? And of course, the immediate response to those hearing it would be, no, that can't happen. It's an absurdity. And Paul's like, that's exactly my point. Because frankly, you're acting like an absurdity. He says to, to, to the Corinthian church, and... In doing so, you're actually, um, in some ways, missing out on the beauty of the diversity that is within the body of Christ with all these different gifts, and in this case, gifted teachers, the way they really should not divide, but they should be enjoyed in a way that we together benefit from them and grow together in Christ. And... uh, He's deliberately causing tension in their minds at this point. And I think, I think, you know, this idea of, are we looking for uniformity? No. We're looking for unity. And unity includes diversity. Uh, there's a, a, a picture of this uh, when you think of harmony. There's a lot, a lot of music happening in this sermon, I guess. But you think of harmony. Uh, there's a melody line and there's a line that's put with it that harmonizes with that line. And it's a beautiful thing. I remember in music history, we had to listen to a lot of uh, the great masters of, from ages past, you know, the Renaissance era and the classical era. And of course, the, the, the preeminent master of the Baroque era would be J.S. Bach, who, by the way, was a believer, loved the Lord, ended all of his pieces in the manuscript by saying sola de gloria at the end. Uh, and uh, brilliant. Apparently, if you ever were in the room with Bach when he was on the organ... Watch out. Because he had hands going, feet going, all playing different lines. Four different things happening at the same time. Totally independent. Wild stuff. But there's this beautiful thing that was developed in Bach's writing. It actually came in through the Baroque period. And it's called counterpoint. And counterpoint is more than just um, harmony. It's actually the idea... And you can, you can kind of see it. Is this, my, is this my light? Oh, here's my light. Yeah. Oh, good. So you can kind of see it. So here you have, notice this line is going, but ignore these red arrows. arrows. They're, they're trying to show mirroring. I don't care about that. So ignore that. This is the best shot I could find. But um, this line, notice going down, up, down, up. This line going up, down. See what's happening? And they're happening at the same time. So when you listen to Bach, you're going to hear that a lot. Counterpoint being, the lines are moving in opposite directions, yet they beautifully work together and sound spectacular. So it's not parallel harmonies. It's different directions, and yet taken as a whole together, gorgeous sounding. Um, Another, this isn't what's up in front of us, but another example of this would be the fugue. So a fugue is actually where one line starts, another line comes in later, another line comes in later, they start at different points, and they're all going different directions at different times, and it's spectacular. 
uh, Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Listen to it later today if you want to just be blown away. Um, good stuff. But the point being, that's a picture of unity. It's unity with diversity, not uniformity. And that's so important. Different preachers with different gifts, different styles, they're all used by God to build up the church. And what an amazing thing it is for God to use them to do that. But here, instead, the Corinthian church goes, oh, no, 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 You heard that few? Yeah, all those other lines, they're okay. This line is amazing. And it's like, what are you talking about? What is a fugue? A fugue, the whole point of the fugue is that all these lines are working together. The whole point of the church is that all these different gifts are being used by God together to build up the body of Christ and to declare the gospel, not to divide it and to base our stance on some fake form of spiritual pride. So if we're going to thrive as a gospel church, we not only need to live in light of one union, we also need to live in pursuit of one mission. We need to live in pursuit of one mission. And that's what we find in, in the latter portion of this passage. What does Paul do now? He, 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 he turns the corner in the second portion of verse 13. says, Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Of course, the answer is No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. It's very wise, by the way, I think that he pointed to himself as the example. You know, those other teachers given by God to the church, he could have said, hey, were you baptized in the name of Paul? So why do you think Paul's, Apollos is a big idea? He didn't do that. He, st- he refers to himself instead. He's like, hey, I'm not a big deal. No, I, I'm, I'm a servant, but you weren't baptized in my name. I wasn't crucified for you. I didn't die in your place. I'm not the one who's reconciling you to God, Paul says. And so no one would say they were baptized in Paul's name. Again, this is another argument from the point of absurdity. And, and really, it's, it's a very powerful reminder of what the church is all about. And we say this a lot here at Clayton Valley Church. Clayton Valley Church belongs to Christ alone. He shed his blood for her. He died for her. He's the one that's called the people to himself here in this place for the purpose of sharing his name in every area that we find ourselves scattered to throughout the week and around the world even. But this is his church. She's his bride. He shares her with no one. And we want to follow the one who's been crucified, the one who is the Lord of his church. And that's why, by the way, when we baptize, we baptize people into the name of the Lord Jesus. The triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Because it's His. We are His. And then you kind of have an aside here. You know, Paul, I love how Paul's very candid. Okay, well, okay, so I only, I baptized, you know, Christmas and Gaius, so you wouldn't say you were baptized into my name. You kind of get the implication there that it was sort of his practice. Like when you went to a place, I'm not going to try to baptize everybody myself. Why? Because it's not about me. Verse 15, so no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize the household of Stephanus. So now he's like, oh yeah, that's right. Now I'm remembering. But, but then he goes, I don't remember if I baptized somebody else. And you're kind of going, yeah, why? Because he gets to the point, verse 17, 
for Christ didn't send me to baptize. That's not the point. Again, is baptism a gift from God? Yes. Is it an important declaration of what God's done in our lives? Absolutely. It's a command from the Lord Jesus himself. It's an ordinance that we hold to as a church. But it doesn't save you. And it's not the thing we're called to. What are we called to? What is Paul called to? Second part of verse 17. But to preach the gospel. This is the first time Paul brings up the gospel in 1 Corinthians. Uh, The Greek word is euangelion. It means to herald good news. It's a beautiful term. Because the point of a gospel herald is not to be a persuader per se. Uh, that's, That's not what it's about. The herald does not come along and try to use enticing cool words and shift you around and persuade you, manipulate you, and then have you show up somewhere else. A herald's job is very simple. They come forward and they declare the message they received. That's it. And so for, for Paul, he gives a very clear declaration of his calling. And notice, he says, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. The way he came was a part of the message. And so he's going to talk about that in the, in, the, in the passages to come. But in conclusion, if we polarize over preaching personality, what happens to us? What Paul is saying, saying here, the danger is this, the gospel is lost. We devolve into sort of this kind of divided, schism-ridden, entity that isn't even an entity anymore because we're all polarized over different personalities and preferences. What does that do to the witness, to our witness to the world around us? Well, what happens is we're too busy getting caught up and I'm listening to that person and I'm of this person and I'm of that person and they're better and I'm better than you because of that. And blah, 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 that the, the world around us is looking for answers. The world around us is, is broken and we're the light in Jesus. And so we need to be in pursuit of one mission. And what's that? Proclaim the gospel. That's it. Be a herald of the good news. Now, how do we do that? How do we approach that? How do we do that in such a way that it's not in our own cleverness? How do we do that in a way so that the the cross of Jesus is not made void? Well, Paul's going to go on to describe that. Uh, But for that, we'll have to gather again next week. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we come to you and ask that you would, again, grace us to grow in you, protect us from becoming connoisseurs of preachers rather than disciples eager to hear your word. And Lord, we ask that you would cause us to grow in... in, um, benefiting from the multiple gifts you've given to your church, but also we ask that you would protect us from making any one of those gifts the main thing rather than you yourself. And so we, we, again, thank you for this time. We thank you for what you're doing amongst us. And we look to you to cause us uh, to, to truly live in light of one union and to live in pursuit of one mission. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.